Hello and welcome to Techno Social. We just got done talking to Stephanie Itami, who's the founder of Sadia. It's a social enterprise that looks at getting women from black and minority ethnic backgrounds into jobs in the cybersecurity sector. Definitely a, a very enlightening discussion, hearing from a, a not often uh, heard perspective on uh, tech and tech issues and um, tech in society, especially tech in African society, which is certainly something we do not hear anything about here in Britain. Mm, interesting to hear about her perspective on the need for diversity in the cybersecurity profession. You know, if people who are black or female aren't in the conversations, then the issues that affect them disproportionately online, things like targeted racial harassment, sexual abuse, will not be factoring into the the thought on how we effectively police the online space. So, yeah, fantastic conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Techno Social. Uh, we're here today with Stephanie Itimi, who is the founder of Sadia. It's a social enterprise that helps to get, uh, well, is aiming to get black and minority ethnic women into the cyberspace sector. Yep. Correct. Specifically cybersecurity. Yes, specifically um, cybersecurity, but we are quite broad in terms of careers, so it's letting everyone know that if you're not a technical person, you can get into cybersecurity through privacy, through policy. So it's basically showing um, the access and the different um, careers that are in cybersecurity that people are not aware about. Mm. So what's your background and kind of what brought you towards founding Sadia? So my background is quite interesting. Um, I was born in Nigeria and then I came here when I was about six. But I was in Scotland um, and then after staying in Scotland I went back to Nigeria. Mm. Came back when I was seven, then went to America for a year. My parents couldn't decide where they wanted me to school. Uh, but then my mum was, or had it in her mind that she preferred the UK. So we came back when I was nine, for year five I believe. And then from there, I mean, I've always liked ICT. I wanted to be an inventor. I wanted to create robots to like help people and um, do cool stuff. And then when I went to A levels, you know, the reality sunk in. I didn't like my physics teacher. Mm. Um, I didn't want to do engineering, um, which kind of broke my dad's heart because he's an engineer. So from there, I was thinking, you know, what can I do with myself? You know, what's what's next? And I failed maths. And physics, um, but I ended up picking uh, A levels in sociology and did it in a year. Mm -hmm. So that was um, pretty cool. And I loved my sociology teacher, so he was very inspiring. And I wanted to be like him because he was able to talk about issues such about family, um, social dynamics, um, the whole kind of self fulfilling prophecy, and how we view ourselves, and how that can have a lasting effect in our life. And then from there, I 
asked him, you know, I want to study sociology, and he was like, no, I studied economics. So I ended up studying economics because he studied economics. Mm. But also because I found voices such as um, Ngozi Nguela, but also Dembi Samoyo, who talked about dead aid and talked about um, how economics can be a fuel to help people improve their lives. So I thought, because I wanted to help people with um, technology, I can do that with economics. So when I went to uni, after my first year, I got an internship at BBC Africa. Mm. And at first I was like, oh, you know, how am I going to fit in? Um, obviously, these people are way experienced than me, way exposed. But I realized that they were struggling a little bit with their social media. And luckily, since I was 16, I used to model and also do a bit of PR. So I knew a lot about like YouTube and what was going on on social media and stuff like that. So I was able to bring that on board. And when the Ebola thing happened, um, they had an idea to tackle fake news through um, WhatsApp. So WhatsApp, um, especially in African countries, can be a medium for fake news, but trying to send people actual factual information about what's going on. Mm. So stuff like how do you bury someone who has a bury like you're not supposed to. You're supposed to call the authority because if you touch, you put yourself at risk of catching the virus. So simple things like that. Right, so how was that going on? Was that kind of people sharing links? So we were talking to um, UNESCO... World Health Organization and Medical Science Frontier hmm. to kind of get the factual information and then I was then writing it in little bite size to then send people both links but also factual information. Hmm. This is the update, this is what's happening. So it's kind of tackling fake news by giving people right on their phones what's happening. We had at the end of the um, project, we had about 16,000 people in West Africa using it. Oh. So it was you know something that was very I think life changing for me because mm. I was able to see how something simple as WhatsApp that we use every day can be a tool for change. Mm. And from there, I kind of, it kind of set the trajectory of my career because everyone saw I did that. So it's like, you must be good in digital. So everyone kind of pushed me more and more into digital stuff. And when I graduated, I got a graduate policy um, scheme with the Home Office. And with that, I was working digital transformation, but I also learned coding um, mm. at the same time. And there was a particular kind of issue that they had, which required someone to do a risk register and look at the data breaches. And they asked me to do it because they're like, you know, so if you're good at IT, you know, why don't you kind of help us out to look at all these stuff? But also like a mapping their system to see where people were not applying for the right forms and stuff like that. So having that experience and looking at data breaches kind of let me understand the policies with privacy, um, what's personal data, what isn't personal data, how do you handle it, and so on. And then from there, I was then able to move into my current role, which I believe in, um, as a cyber intelligence analyst, where I'm kind of working on one of the human trafficking, but also trying to see ways in which people are abusing the internet. Mm. Um, internet, but also um, through phones, so not just the computer, but how is technology being used to facilitate crimes. And being in that field, I realized, um, because it's quite law enforcement that I'm engaging with on a daily basis, mm. that it's very male-dominated, number one. But number two, I didn't see people who looked like me. Um, and it really bothered me because there was lots of conversations about software, about girls learning how to code, but there wasn't enough about 
you know, cybersecurity. And why cybersecurity is important, especially if we're going to be looking at the human side of it, is that, you know, stuff like cyberbullying, stuff like um, how images affect the way girls think about themselves, mm. um, stuff about revenge porn, all these things are disproportionately affecting women more than men. And if there are not enough women in the field, how are we going to solve these issues? Um, when we're talking about solutions, if there's no woman um, of color, you know, a white woman, or just anyone who identifies as female, if they're not in the room, how are we going to have a diverse conversation? How are we going to have solutions that would actually change um, what's happening? So I decided to create CDR, just a way of letting women know that, you know, hey, this field exists, it's around male dominated. And, you know, we need more women, not just for, oh, we need equality, which we do, but also we need equality in terms of voices. Our voice is not being heard in the policy field. It's not being heard in terms of privacy. You know, it's not being taken seriously if you say, you know, my ex-boyfriend is stalking me or something like that, and he's using it through text messages or whatever. Stuff like that is not being taken seriously. And because of that, we need more women who can understand and say, actually, no, I know someone who's been through this. Um, I know how it feels. And mm. because of that, this is probably the best way we can tackle it. Because if we do it that way, as well, I may feel threatened, I may not want to come out. So it's just having um, more women to have these sort of discussions to hopefully, so we can live in a world where women are safe online. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, rather unfortunately, this podcast is actually, in a way, a microcosm of that issue because we've had five people on so far mm-hmm. to talk about generally tech, but society, but generally tech. And they've all been white guys and like you know it is noticeable when you look at say all the big famous names in tech it's all like elon musk mark zuckerberg um jeff bezos it's all just you know white dudes and you know it it is slightly being addressed now that like asian economies are online and china's a big innovator that's just one other part of the world really and that's not that's happening over there it's not happening here um so what do you think um, are the sort of general reasons why we've sort of ended up at a situation in tech where it is so dominated by men and specifically um, European heritage men? I think it's what you see you emulate, right? Representation mm. is key and I don't think there has been enough um, focus on, I guess people of colour who are inventors for example, the person who Created traffic lights was a black guy, but no one talks about that. Do you know I mean? we don't see that in history books? And it's because we don't see these things. We only see ourselves in certain careers, and because we only see ourselves in certain careers, we want to then be in those careers. So whether that's well, I'm from an African heritage, so it's mostly doctors, engineers, you know, those sorts of things. But in terms of entrepreneurship, we don't really see ourselves in a big stage in kind of the mainstream and if we talk about America because America is mainstream mm-hmm. we don't really see ourselves there and also we're kind of discouraged so for me about my experience of the whole physics thing I didn't understand physics mm-hmm. and I was you know going back to my teacher like you know I don't understand this and she's like read the book I'm like I've read the book she's like well if you don't understand it then that's it but that wasn't very helpful mm-hmm. and obviously that discouraged me also, I'm kind of back in the field, but it's that kind of, we don't have, first of all, enough teachers letting people know, especially girls, that actually, you know, this is an okay 
filled for you. You know, you can come into this field. And if you're getting um, praises in stuff like law and essays, but you're not really being told that, you know, have you just considered maybe doing DT? Or have you considered maybe doing ICT? It might be good. You might mix your passion for writing and storytelling with tech, for example. Mm. So I feel like because there's not enough push in that direction, obviously things are changing. Now, you know, women in tech is a huge business, mm. if I'm being honest, but it's the message is out there that we need more women in the field. But whether that's a reality, I think it's, I think it's an issue in terms of we're seeing a lot of women in the field, but my fear is there's a lot of white women and a lot of mm. women of color. Mm. Um, and especially when you go to these women in tech events, it's like we are seeing a change from this kind of European male heritage, but I feel like it's almost becoming a European male and a female heritage, but we're not really seeing the push um, mm. for women of color in mainstream stages. I'm not just talking about things where it's our own thing, whether it's like Black Girls Code or whatever, but actual mainstream where it's accessible to everyone. <laughs> we don't really see that. And also, I just feel, you know, there needs to be more activities. I know when I was growing up, there was a lot of youth clubs. Mm. You know, you can do stuff like um, sports and stuff, I think. So those kind of things, as a child, you're exposed to, oh, maybe I can do sports. Oh, maybe I can do this. You know, maybe this isn't a boy's game, those sorts of things. Mm. And I feel like if we were able to bring something back like that, for children of today, I think girls would be able to see, actually, you know what, you know, I like fashion, but also there's fashion tech. I might be able to mix those two together. Um, but also, I think there are barriers as well. So this is just the awareness stage in terms of if someone's a child. But I think going into the adult stage, a lot of women are being pushed out of the technology sector because there is this representation, which is good, but there's no inclusion. And how do you have inclusion? It's not just hiring someone of color, but have you made them feel comfortable? Um, mm. Have you made the, their voices be valuable in discussion? Is it just you're there as a problem, that's it? Mm. And I feel like in most cases, when we have people of color in tech, sometimes it's a thing where, okay, you're there, we've done our job, that's it. We've kind of fought the whole equality fight. But have you included them in discussions? Have you shown them that, you know, their opinion is valuable? Mm-hmm. How are you treating them on a daily basis? Have you understand the cultural thing? There might be a culture shock. You know, for example, if I know a black young boy from South London may not be able to know stuff about rugby. I mean, mm-hmm. he may be, but he might not be exposed to it because in his immediate area, it's not being discussed. Or you might not understand classics or certain stuff, you know, cricket. And these are things that might seem small, but in the workplace, it's very isolating because as a person of color, you're not able to enter this conversation because you may not understand, you know, cricket, rugby, Mm. And this is just me making it very simple. It's yeah. more complex than that. But, but it's this sort of general, like, cultural sort of divide that just because you're in a workplace, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be as engaged. It doesn't mean you're going to have access to the same sort of social environment that that might, workplace might constitute for sort of someone else who fits the bill more easily, so to say. Like, Yeah, and, you know, people also talk about bad managers, as well mm. you know it's their diversity training and it's not just unconscious bias because I've done some training um, with executives actually and 
when I saw it, it's the unconscious bias is not really challenged. And this is not even from a racial point of view. Even simple things as age. Mm-hmm. Or um, if I see someone's CV and she stopped her internship um, for a while because she had family issues, she can solve it, you know. You're not supposed to let family stop the real you. That's some, you know, older generation thinking. And someone has actually said this. Or, oh, millennials are no for job hopping. If I employ mm. this person, you may not stay in the company for long. Mm. So, the training of the unconscious bias is not just having the training. Yes, your awareness, you've created awareness, step one. But step two, have you created things in place to kind of ensure that you're reviewing? There's a monitoring and evaluation of mm-hmm. that person's learning to kind of show that they've understood what they've been taught. And I don't think that that's there, mm. you know. And also, I feel like in companies, when you have stuff like anti-bullying and, you know, equality and stuff like that, is it lip service or are things being done? Is there like a safe space where if someone feels excluded, they can go to and voice a complaint and stuff like that? Mm-hmm. So. I feel it's it's uh, the whole issue of why we don't really have enough people mainstream. I feel like first is awareness at the early stage, but also moving forward is do they feel included? Mm. Um, and if they feel included, you're empowered. You want to do more. You want to reach for the top. You want to stay in the company. You want to rise. Mm. You know. But if you're not feeling empowered, that's one and two. You know, when we talk about VC funding women of colour again they don't really get that much funding first mm. women don't get much funding in, from VCs and then to add the whole fact that you're a person of colour that's another barriers so those I feel like are the barriers that stop um, people of colour from moving onto that stage where they can maximise so I feel like there's restriction in funding there's restriction in um, opportunities at times mm. um, but also just even from the basic level, awareness is not there. If you're in immediate environment, you're not seeing you're not seeing anyone who looks like you in a particular field. Why would you want to go into the field? Mm. You might feel mm, okay. Maybe that's just not for me. So, do you think this is that say like tech currently being very it's totally dominated by private companies? Mm. By, so, like you have Apple and, and Facebook and all these companies, and what they care about really, because they're companies, is the bottom line. So, do you think that they're not really motivated to take the issue seriously because, to them, you know, they see things in terms of money, and you know, it's very hard to quantify the value of a diverse sort of workplace in financial terms. Like, it's just, it's just a difficult connection to make in a sort of measurable way. Funny enough, there actually has been studies on diversity showing that it actually improves the financial, um, I guess, profits of companies. So the more diversity is, the more profitable it is. There's been loads of research in this area. But I believe that what we're seeing now, the whole diversity and inclusion discussion, is just like how I think about six years ago when environment was a big issue and um, the whole social um, corporate social responsibility was a big issue and every company wanted to show that you know we are socially responsible we are back in a charity of some sort and I feel like this is just a different way because now people are discussing so therefore although they're being driven by money I feel like we as consumers have power mm. <laughs> so it's same way in politics um, if you refuse to pay your tax the government doesn't get any money so, because they didn't get any money, they listen to what you have to say. 
well, this is how democracy is supposed to work. Obviously, in African countries where they're dependent on oil, they don't really care about what the people say at times because mm. their money doesn't come from taxes, it comes from um, resource. But in a utopian democracy, we as the people are supposed to have the power without financial means, which is money. Same way with companies. If we are demanding, we as a user, demanding companies to think about diversity and inclusion and more conversations are happening, whether they are driven by money or not, because people are talking about it and they want consumers to buy their products, they are forced to then actually take action. Mm. Now, the whole lip service thing, I think it's similar, like, you know, with, with a social, corporate social responsibility years ago, some of it was lip service and we are going to see it. But I think if we get bogged down with, do they really care about it? We're not going to go anywhere. When it's actually, okay, you've, making, you've made the first step, congratulations, thank you. Uh, but now, what are the next steps to actually ensure that person stays in? What's your retention level mm. of people of color? You know, when you talk about diversity, now removing race, like how do you treat people with disabilities, your um, workplace, is it accessible? Can anyone with a wheelchair or any sort of disability, can they work there? And even now with the neurodiversity, some people have, um, I think it's dyslexia and dyspraxia? I'm not sure mm, if I'm saying it correctly. Autistic. You know, like, how are you including everyone? Mm. So it's thinking about it in the wider sense mm. and ensuring that everyone, because most people don't have, um, this is like, you know, as a white straight man, I have no disability or nothing. You know, some, some people have a mixture of things. It could be that a white straight man could be you know have dyslexia for example mm. so it's think about it in a wider sense and then when you think about it in a wider sense how can we make everyone happy then think about okay let's do a review what is our pain points what are we not doing well and then from there focus on that mm. so I think that's what's more important because people talk about okay you want diversity but you don't think about other things like disability and things like that so if we're talking about a real inclusive society you have to think about it broadly, but also monitor and evaluate it. Don't just think, okay, we've solved the problem, that's it. But monitor and evaluate to see whether this is actually working or whether you need to change your method. And I think that's the problem. It's not, oh, do they care about it? Because whether they care about it or not, they're still doing it because they're driven by consumers. Mm -hmm. But it's, are you monitoring and evaluating to ensure that what you've put in place is working? Or have you just done it and it's like, okay, hands off. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the interesting points you made was, Talking about particularly diversity within cyber uh, cybersecurity, and say if there aren't any female voices or black voices present, then the issues that affect these people aren't going to come up in conversations and may not be addressed. And so, what are some of these issues that say affect women and people of color online? Okay, so I think for women of color, um, there was a research done in the UK recently that women of colour are mostly um, affected by cyberbullying. So this could be in the form of Islamophobia, um, form of racism, it could be in the form of fat shaming. So any sort of things you can kind of see that's cyberbullying. We also have um, stalking, which is when mm. someone is texting you and get and you block the number, they use a number and then they're harassing you. So that's harassment online. And you also have revenge porn, where a partner might break up with, you know, whoever they were with, and that said person now feels offended and puts 
videos that they've intimately had consensual um anyway you guys know what I'm talking about mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they might put those tapes online you know to discredit you mm. and so that's another form of harassment so it's it's these sorts of stuff but also even looking at um stuff like um I think there've been discussions about robots targeted robots from white supremacists that are targeting certain people's account just to harass them mm. and I think the issue that we're having with the internet is because people can now be anonymous Mm. And we know from psychology when you can be anonymous, when you can kind of remove that, um, I guess, personal identity from a conversation. You can be whoever you want to be. Mm. You know, you do things that you don't, you wouldn't normally say on a day to day because you're being pol- policed. And my biggest issue with the whole online safety is in society, if someone was to, you know, call me racist names. I can go to the police and say, you know, this person said racist names to me. Yeah. And then the police can come and hopefully, you know, reprimand the person or the person will face the consequences by law. But on the internet, anyone can say anything. And yeah. the biggest issue is free speech. But free speech should have consequences. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? This is actually a sort of a, a big point that um, I've made to a lot of people I've talked with in the past that kind of like at least in my interpretation, you know, your right to free speech is not your right, a right to freedom from judgment. Mm. That like, the, the right, your right to free speech says that as long as you're not inciting people to commit crimes or be violent, that generally the, the state will not impede your ability to speak. Mm. But it doesn't say that the people you're speaking to won't pass judgment on you for it and won't, and that society won't take a view on what you say. And that, and that's sort of like, you know, that's right. And that's good because that's kind of how morality happens by us, like passing judgment on things and being like, I'm okay with this, or I'm not okay with this. or this isn't something that we should, you know, allow to happen in our society. And then exactly as you say, I've, um, sort of, especially when I was younger, I went on a lot of anonymous image boards just because I played a lot of video games and I just encountered stuff there that like no one would ever say in the real world like a huge one um, is Holocaust denial on the internet like this is not something that you can come out and say in public I've never heard anyone say it in public Nick Griffin ex-leader of the BNP quite famously went on question time and denied the Holocaust and his party disappeared as an electoral force after that because it was became completely indefensible to sort of support them after their leader has denied the Holocaust but this is something that is made possible by online anonymity and all kinds of other sort of similarly sort of disgusting um, points of view can be put forwards when you're behind the veil of anonymity and in a way like I don't feel like it's hugely a free speech issue because if you need the veil of anonymity to say be a whistleblower on bad corporate activity there's lots of other ways you can do it like online anonymous sort of just culture is often not actually the vehicle for that kind of sort of constructive anonymity it's almost always the vehicle for people to just you know just sort of blurt out the worst bit of their brains in a very direct and permanent form and then never face any consequences for it and um yeah i think i think it's a big issue but it's also a very complex one because um you know if you look at say you know china that has the most absolute strongest internet controls of anywhere they still have aren't able to really like 
control what people say online, mm-hmm. even with like full on totalitarian sort of regulations. Mm-hmm. It's uh, so for for us in a society that ostensibly values or you know not regulating stuff too much, it's a very complex question. Um, so I mean, is there any um, have you encountered any sort of um, you know? Suggestions from people for how to how to how to sort of combat people putting forward these kind of views on the internet. So um, with Sadia, I do a yearly annual survey where I send it to um, it's for Bane women in the UK, but also in Nigeria to kind of understand what they're going through on the internet in terms of cyber violence. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them said that they felt like the biggest driver for cyber violence against women was the whole being anonymous. Mm-hmm. Well, they also said that they felt the responsibility were with social media companies. Um, that they write these regulations, again now with lip service. Mm-hmm. So they write these policies that, you know, we don't condone harassment and all these sorts of things. But when it comes to practicality, they are not doing what they say that they're doing. And we know with law, it's, it's how things are worded, right? People, some people understand these things and they're able to kind of bypass this policy. So, for example, if someone wants to say, well, I wouldn't say it, but if anyone wants to say like a, um, an offensive word, they can change the letter mm. of the word. Mm. And want, you know, do you know what I mean? To make it sound like it's something else. And because they've changed one letter of the word, by law, you can't prosecute them and say, you know, that they're being. I know, racist, homophobic, or whatever, because they've found a way to manipulate it in a way where you get the message, but they don't get the consequences. <laughs> now, with solutions on how we can combat it, it's also we as the users to report. And the issue is, especially why I did it in Nigeria, is in the UK, we know that if someone does something, we can just report the tweet. Mm. But not everybody knows that, you know, mm. especially in developing countries. Not everybody knows that. And it's sometimes even in some cases could be even worse in developing countries because there's now cultural values in play. So someone told me about an example where she was videoed because she had a short skirt and then the, they removed her skirt to say, you know, you shouldn't be dressed like this. Um, it's inappropriate. And the video went online. Mm. And then people were, you know, clapping for the guy saying, yes, Girls of today are wearing short skirts, and then they you know, they wonder why they're getting raped or whatever. Mm. But you, you see the issue. It's 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 very complex because first of all, we're not just dealing with the internet because the internet is different everywhere else. Yeah. In the UK, it's different. In in some certain developed countries, it's different. In China, mm. it's definitely different. But it's how do you create a online policy that is applicable? to every country. Now, looking at the whole African continent, Nigeria is the only country, well, not the only country, but they were one of the first countries who had a cybersecurity law. And that was only based on the whole 419 um, stereotype of a Nigerian scammer and all these, and we're trying to tackle that by saying, actually, we're doing something about it. Mm-hmm. And South Africa is the only country that's actually, in Africa, that's done a revenge porn policy to actually stop it, to say, you know, this is unfair, you're not allowed to post your ex-partner's videos and blah, blah, blah. But other African countries are to follow suit. 
and now we have an issue where there's a clash of culture. <laughs> there's a clash of culture, and it's how do we move into this utopian world where everyone has their own version of what they think online security is. <laughs> and that's why we're not moving forward. Um, so I'm a Christian, and one of the verses is, you know, house divided by itself cannot rule. <laughs> and I feel like this is what we're seeing, because there are so many countries with different points of views on what is acceptable and not acceptable on the internet, it makes it very difficult for people to police these things. Now, social media companies, yeah, you know, sometimes I do agree that they can do a bit more than what they're doing. But at times, I also feel sorry for them because you're trying to you have a product which isn't everywhere. It's a global product. But you can't essentially police that product everywhere that it is because different countries have different laws and they have different ways in which they deal with things. Mm. So how, if it's in a, like the, the case of the um, example I, I said with the whole girl being stripped, this was in Nigeria, how do you police that when culturally some people think that's acceptable? Mm. <laughs> so, Presumably some people would be resistant to the idea that some people in boardrooms in America are coming along and saying that this is inappropriate. You know, it's like, who the fuck are you to tell us? Who, who are you? And also dynamics, you know, we're in post-colonialism. So that's another, oh, who's America and who's British to tell us what to do? And mm. these are like Western ideas are killing our culture. Is that a big drive in African countries at the moment to kind of push away from the West? No, yes and no. Yes, in a sense, I feel like a lot of African countries are still trying to find their identity post-colonialism. Hmm. See, okay, who are we? What is our culture? What do we value? Um, and it's kind of this picking the best bits and the, leaving the worst bits and kind of understand, okay, what fits me? So I think every African country is in kind of that phase where they're thinking, okay, what is our identity post-colonialism? Now, we should also know that a lot of African countries haven't really been around as long as Western countries have been around for. Mm. You know, some of them are still like 50, 60 years old, while a lot of Western countries are hundreds and hundreds of years old. So they've had time to make the mistakes and to go through um, pruning to get to where they are now. We are still kind of pruning. Obviously, we have the advantage where we can kind of say, okay, I see what they're doing. Maybe we can adopt this. So I feel like that's the issue. Now, in terms of Nigeria adopting the whole cybersecurity tackle financial crime, that a lot of the policies was taken from a Western context. It's okay, how was it solved elsewhere? And how can we implement this here? But they haven't also taken to the account that there are also human issues such as people stalking people online, and mm. cyberbullying, harassment, and all these things. So it's, an, it's a thing where I don't think it's a, oh, we don't want to be like the West. I think it's trying to say, okay, how can we have the best of the both worlds that suits mm. us, but also suits our country as a whole? Because the leaders are also not thinking about themselves, because even though they may agree with certain things, culturally, it may not be acceptable. So, you know, now we're fighting, an example could be the FGM. Mm -hmm. um, there's been a huge fight with the FGM and there's been huge successes. You know, Nigeria's bandit and so has Gambia, but certain countries such as Syria, for example, it still happens there. And mm -hmm. that's because it's a huge cultural thing. So in that case, they're saying, okay, no, this is a Western idea that you say you can't do this. Um, and this is what we believe in. We've done this for years and this is our tradition. So I think it's not a simple answer. 
everything yeah. is very complex. And it's like, in a way, I think something we see, the internet intensifying is actually clash of differing social like yeah. views that it allows sort of all these groups, no matter how small, to organize in a way they've never done so before. Mm. And then also just sort of lash out at one another mm. in ways that they've never done so before. And it kind of takes a lot of issues that could be very local and like blows them up to a global scale because anyone from anywhere can see it. So, um, you know, the, I think, and this, it can be sort of good and bad because I think with the FGM example, on the one hand, it gets a lot of global exposure and that's kind of good because it means people from everywhere can contribute to combating it. But at the same time, it could contribute to, say, negative perceptions of African countries because then it's like, oh, look at this, you know, thing that they do in these countries isn't that bad. Mm. And so, and then, you know, this... Um, it's a very sort of it's it's a it's a problem that that seems to a lot of people to be intensifying that all our sort of pre-existing sort of social conflicts and issues and friction have are, you know, the internet has actually kind of you know turned them into flashpoints of has 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 made them more instead of less intense and it you know I, I certainly according to a lot of older people seems potentially like a step backwards that now all of these issues can be blown up onto a global stage. Hmm. I think that that is a. I think I'm kind of happy that it's a flash flashlight. Hmm. You know, I'm happy that people can pick up their phones and record when they've been harassed, um, hmm. because it makes the issue seem real. You know, people talk about, oh, I didn't know this happened, or now you know it happened before. Mm. But no one had the tools, the kind of the tools and the language to say, you know, this is happening to me. Mm-hmm. And I feel like because we're seeing that, it's creating the awareness. Now, in the other spectrum, where we're kind of over-aware about certain issues, for example, what's happening in America with black men being shot and black women um, by police, seeing that as traumatizing, seeing that every day. I mean, I'm in the UK and I'm already traumatized and I've had to like kind of mute all of that, those videos, like, okay, now yeah. I know it exists, I don't want to know anymore. Mm. And I can't imagine what people, especially African Americans in America, are feeling seeing that every day, because then that can be damaging, because you're constantly seeing trauma every day. So I yeah. think it's, it's, with things, there's always a spectrum to it. You know, the good news is we're able to kind of see issues that people may have thought about, but not necessarily voiced out, but then now that someone has voiced it out, oh wow, yeah, I agree with you. Mm. And it's kind of brought those things to light. Also, I think it allows people to be aware and it sometimes puts pressure on political parties. And now that I'm talking about political stuff is, especially in like Africa, for example, I know recently there was an issue in Cameroon between Anglophones versus Francophones. <laughs> and the um, president cut off all internet connection so that it wouldn't be put on Twitter, it wouldn't blow up. Yeah. But people still found ways to let someone know, to then bring the issue into light. Mm. So I think from that we can kind of see the power of the internet, Mm. but also the fact that it can force people in power to actually do what they need to do. Mm. Um, In the UK as well, I feel 
in terms of issues I love the fact that we're seeing conversations and how before I know we, we spoke earlier about how um, certain discussions seem quite elitist people who don't know you know how they can enter these conversations but because the internet's kind of made it a platform where it's kind of killed that Eiffel Tower thinking and has brought people into conversations and also allowed people who didn't have the language um, or the skills that they didn't have in the past kind of say okay this is how I feel and this is what it is by seeing how people have worded the experiences and stuff like that so I think it's taken us a step forward by making us aware of these issues because I think what's been happening in the past is a lot of issues have just been swept on the rug like you know this is just how things are Mm. but what I like is I feel especially with our generation I mean the move with the internet is it's like no we're not going to sweep this under the rug we're going to talk about it we're going to fight this we're going to challenge and I think it's also allowed people to think that they can make a difference and it's removed this whole world of location because now you can connect to anyone from around the world so I believe that's taking us a step forward now the issue with things is I'm going to speak from an economics background but public good it gets abused you know, mm-hmm. it either gets underused or it gets overused, and then you have to think about allocation, who has, and I think that's the issue we are now. And the internet has become a mini society, and it's okay now that we're in a mini society. What is morality in this society? What is um, what is our concept of law and order? Who polices what? Um, you know, we see vigilante systems where people, you know, they say things. And they have consequences where whether people um, send a screenshot to the employers or people get involved and they act as like a police, like, no, what you're doing is wrong and blah, blah, blah. And it's interesting to see kind of this new society and how it's evolved and what is it going to be like. Now, when we're talking about security, is who police what? You know, who, who, owns, who owns what data? Who has the right to police what you're saying? Um, and how, who takes ownership of, of this? So there are many times and there are many discussions and there have been many regulations where companies are being forced to think about ways, you know, to comply with the GDPR, to let people know which of their data is being sent to advertising companies. But I also believe that there's an issue with us as the users not reading the terms and conditions. And this is something I feel very strongly about because terms and conditions tells you what is going to happen to your data, which part of your data they're using. And I know one guy recently said about how he didn't know the terms and condition with his TV manufacturing company, they can record conversations. Mm. And this is just showing us how far we've gone. That's <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> Do you yeah. know what I mean? How far we've gone. I know there are lots of jokes that, oh, Siri's hearing what I'm saying, or Alexa is listening to our conversations, or I say something and all of a sudden I'm seeing ads about it. Yeah, literally. It's... I hate to interrupt, but we've actually only got a couple of minutes left, and I feel like we could go on and on and on for hours. This is absolutely, really kind of enlightening. Um, there's a question that we've asked all of our guests, which is kind of in closing, um, what's something that you think all people, especially kind of young people, should know about the future towards which we're moving? I think what I would say is know your rights on the internet. I don't think uh, there's a lot of um, citizenship discussion you kind of know your rights as a person 
but people don't know their internet rights. And one of it is, if someone says something that you don't like, if you feel like you're being bullied, you can report it. You can decide to block that person. And this is just simple steps. But also, when you're going to websites and when you are accessing a new technology, read the terms and condition because you need to understand how is your data being used. And we no longer can be excused in our ignorance and say, oh, they're seeing our data. But what are you guys use to doing it? I feel like we need to take ownership of our data and of our rights on the internet and that's something that I believe both young and old people should think about especially moving forward because when you then understand your rights you can then protect yourself on the internet effectively mm. fantastic cool. thank you so much Stephanie yeah thank you it's been a very very interesting discussion and it has hopefully um, uh, all of you have learned something else dear listeners uh, see you guys on the next episode of Technosocial. I suppose, is there anything you want to plug at all at the end, actually? Oh, plug. Um, so, we have two events coming up. So, the first event is going to be on the 19th of June. And that would um, be on, if you go to Digital Leaders, it's during the Digital Leaders Week. And it's discussion being women in cybersecurity. We have speakers from Intel, um, from Societe Generale, and also from WorldPay, as well as the BBC, who are the head and in senior positions talking about how can we get more women in cybersecurity but also what is their experience and what do they feel the next generation can do to be able to come overcome those barriers that they faced and the second event it's on the 19th of July and that is a round table a learning table discussion with Carla Refold who is the managing director of Beecher Meters, which is a one of the um, top cybersecurity recruitment firms and she's going to be showing um, people who come to this event basically the salary divide between men and women and what to expect and what to say when you go for job interviews in terms of expectations um, they're both free so definitely recommend that people attend to that and follow us um, at sadia.org and we also have sadia si for our both our instagram also our twitter so i think that's all i have to plug fantastic we mentioned the plug in this podcast Oh no, it's cool. We'll put a we'll put a link in the description to yours so everyone can go and have a listen. Okay, let's wrap it up. <laughs> Cheers.